Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication and what I'm doing this week, I'm continuing my examination of the short story collections from Stephen King. Um, As you know, um, during my initial um, mission of the the Stephen King cast, like I said, it's the chronological order of publication. Um, I did technically review all the short story collections. I just didn't necessarily review all the short stories within each of the collections. So what I've been doing over the last few weeks is heading back and uh, you know correcting that and getting around to all the short stories I did not do the first time around, which brings us to today, just after sunset, um, my second go around. So as I've been doing over the last couple of weeks, I've been kind of just moving away from the, the, the emails and the iTunes right now just to get you know, some, some shorter episodes that are straight to the point um, with the, the Wikipedia summaries and my reviews and my thoughts. Um, so again, I'm going to um, just um, move past the emails for right now and the iTunes reviews. I'm going to get straight to the, the meat and potatoes of the, the short stories themselves. With that said, um, this does not mean that I'm not going to read emails again on the air. I just uh, want to get to this. Um, so if you do have any thoughts, please write to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Um, and if you have any any time, please leave an iTunes review because that would really help me out. So um, back to just after sunset. Up first, we have Willa. So from Wikipedia, a man finds himself in a train station after an apparent wreck with a few of the other passengers. Unable to locate his fight, uh, fiance Willa, he decides to set out to a nearby town where he knows she would go to find her. The others try to convince him that not only is the train going to arrive any minute to pick them up, going to the town is dangerous, as the almost three-mile hike goes straight through the deserted terrain that is inhabited by dangerous wolves. Ignoring their advice, he heads into town and has a close encounter with one of the wolves on the way. Noticing some lights and music at a nearby honky-tonk, he decides to investigate and finds Willa sitting all alone in a corner booth. As he tries to convince her to come back to the station with him, he realizes what they've both known all along, that he and Willa, along with the rest of the passengers at the train station, are actually ghosts, dead from a train wreck that happened nearly 20 years before. When they return to the station, he sees a poster saying that the station will be demolished, a poster that the other ghosts are unable to see because of their disbelief. He and Willa leave the station for good, pondering what will happen to the ghosts during demolition. So the review, um, the twist of the story reveals itself organically and steadily. First, there's the sense of having been stranded for quite some time. The characters seem to know each other very well, too well, for a recent derailment. So when it's revealed that they're ghosts, it's the perfect explanation for the familiarity. I'll get to the ghost story of it all in a moment, and the possible metaphor that lies within, but first, I just have to acknowledge the beauty of the writing itself. His knack for observation has never been keener when he writes... Night came on, and the stars unrolled across the sky from east to west, like a rug with spangles in it. Or when he writes, He heard faint music, a bass line, and the cry of a pedal steel guitar, which always sounded to him like chrome teardrops, even in happy songs. King leads you to believe that you're getting a ghost story about a man and a woman in a strange relationship. She's about to leave him. He has to find her. But instead, King flips it. When he finds her, we realize that the conflict isn't about their relationship, but accepting their very existence. It's a wonderful ghost story, 
and it's brilliant by having it begin in a train depot. Just as they're caught in an in-between existence, they're physically set in a place of waiting. The story wraps up with our lovers choosing life, dancing, and music over waiting and ruin and what becomes an origin story for the types of ghost stories you hear about in your local area. David hushed. He put his face in her hair and let the music take him. He thought they would stay here now, and that, from time to time, people would see them. 26 might even get a reputation for being haunted. Probably not. People didn't think of ghosts much while they were drinking, unless they were drinking alone. Sometimes when they were closing up, the bartender and the last waitress, the one with the most seniority, the one responsible for splitting the tips, might have an uneasy sense of being watched. Sometimes they'd hear music even after the music had stopped, or catch movement in the mirror next to the dance floor, or one in the lounge, usually just from the tail of the eye. David thought they could have finished up in better places, but on the whole, 26 wasn't bad. Until closing, there were people, and there would always be music. So we have a couple of Stephen Kingisms. Uh, the Unlucky Traveling Couple, and then Wolves. Um, wolves, well, so actually going back to the unlucky, unlucky Traveling Couple, we see this again and again. We've seen this in Children of the Corn. You know, they've got a hell of a band. That feeling you get... Um, and I just, I just reviewed it last week, but I can't think of the title. The feeling you get, you know, you can only say in French, something like that. If you are a traveling couple, um, chances are something bad's going to happen to you. Um, then we have wolves. Wolves we have seen before in The Stand and The Talisman and Wolves of the Kala. So this is a really good story. I'm really glad to have revisited this. I, I didn't remember it the, the way that I thought that I had remembered it when I first read it. So going back and rereading it and seeing it for, for what it truly is, I really, really enjoyed it. And I know that it is, um, they're making a a Willa movie. Um, they launched an Indiegogo um, campaign to make Willa a short film. So I am I'm very excited to see um, how Willa turns out. Um, so all you have to do, you can follow them on Twitter... Um, just, you know, look at Willa, a short film, or you can go to Indiegogo.com and type in, um, Willa, um, and it will, will come, it will come up. So I'm, I'm very excited to see, um, what, what the, the creators of this movie, um, are able to, to do with this film, because I think that it could be a, a nice, fun, sad, happy uh, little little experience, and I think that in in a world in which we're living in, in which a ghost story has come out, I think that there's room for for these types of stories. Then we have Harvey's dream from Wikipedia. Harvey and Janet, a middle-aged couple, married couple in a dysfunctional relationship, discusses over breakfast in detail how Harvey woke up screaming from a dream he had. One of their daughters was run over and killed. Janet soon realizes how the details of the dream are unerringly accurate for the morning especially noticing how their neighbor's car has a dent in it, along with what looks like a blood stain and a dark patch of dirt or hair. The story ends when Harvey answers a phone call, as he did in his dream, presumably confirming Janet's mounting fears that the events of the dream are true. Everything Harvey described were actual events from earlier that morning, only believed to be a dream due to Harvey's self-denial and his onsetting Alzheimer's disease. My review. 
Not only is this a brutal examination of a long-term marriage, which I'll discuss in a moment, but the building dread as Harvey begins to work through his dream is haunting. In fact, for those of you who have seen Mulholland Drive will know that people describing their dreams can be more terrifying than anything you'll see out of a typical horror movie. It's terrifying through the perspective of Janet and something that we can all relate to. Who among us hasn't had a horrible dream in which we were trying to scream but couldn't make the proper sounds to speak? It's little details like that that make it seem as real as it does. But let's look at what Wikipedia said about the story. According to Wikipedia, the events of the dream are really real events that had transpired earlier that morning because Harvey had already received a call from one of their daughters informing them about their daughter's death. However, I'm not quite sure that adds up. Because if it's Alzheimer's, which is mentioned in the story, then both our main characters suffer from it because Janet has no recollection of the phone call. And if the daughter is calling them because the police have informed her of the fact that the other daughter had been killed, then how is the car still in the driver's you know, neighbor's driveway and not impounded? Unless the police have discovered the body, but not the car, I suppose. Either way, I'm not sure I buy the Alzheimer's bid. Not literally, anyway. The slipping reality of existence through dream logic can certainly represent the effects of Alzheimer's from a symbolic standpoint, but I'm not sure if the characters actually have Alzheimer's. Does that make sense? Kingisms. Uh, we have the examination of marriage. Um, King, at this point in his career, has been really examining marriage a lot. We have uh, LT's theory of pets. We're going to be having a good marriage coming up soon. We have that thing you can say only in French. Okay. Um, up next, we have Rest Stop. Author John Dykstra, who writes under the pen name of Rick Hardin, has had too much beer to drink at his mystery writer's group meeting and desperately needs to find a rest stop on his return from Jacksonville to Sarasota. There's only one other car at the rest stop, and he hears its occupants in the ladies' bathroom. As a woman in a man's voice he hears coming from the bathroom and clearly the sounds of domestic abuse. John Dykstra is too timid and frightened to act, yet he assumes the mentality of his alter ego, Hardin, and attacks the man with a tire iron. Calling the police and ordering the woman to leave the scene of the car, much to her protest, Hardin smashes the man's glasses to ensure he doesn't follow him on the road in retaliation. After some time, Hardin mentally reverts to Dykstra, who begins to vomit out the side of his vehicle when the adrenaline rush of the incident wears off. He stops at a gas station and thoroughly searches to make sure the man has not followed him. Upon returning home, Dykstra locks his doors and activates his burglar alarm system. Review. You would think that after countless stories about writers, King would have run out of things to say about the subject, but even though his tale doesn't exactly set the world on fire, it's a nice little niche of a story that tells a very pers specific perspective. As I'll state in the Kingisms, this dives into the trope of not, of not just King writing about writers, but writing about the duality of the writer's life from real life, as seen in The Dark Half, Secret Window, Secret Garden, Omni's Last Case... Here, our main character channels his bad boy pen name to dole out some pulpy, hard-boiled justice on a domestic abuser. The story never outstays its welcome. King knows how to wrap it up before it starts to get stale. And even though our main character is never in any danger, there's always uncertainty regarding the resolution. All in all, it's an interesting little tale. Like I said, King has tackled the concept of writer either losing himself in his work or having his identity get lost in the work before, but... Without the trappings of the supernatural, we get a relatable what-would-you-do-if-you-were-in-this-situation scenario. Stephen Kingisms. Of course, as I've mentioned this, the author. We see the author a lot in the works of Stephen King. And as I said, the dual identity, which we have seen in Secret Window, Secret Garden, Omni's Last Case, Dark Half. Up next, we have Stationary Bike. 
Um, the story opens with Richard Sifkitz, commercial artist and widower, visiting his doctor and staring at the results of his physical. Richard's cholesterol is dangerously high, largely due to his high food, fast food intake. The doctor tells him an interesting anecdote in relation to the number. He likens Richard's metabolism to a team of workmen who clear the various junk foods that Richard ingests. As Richard ages, these metabolic workmen tire out and begin to slow down, resulting in heart trouble. The metaphor strikes Richard, and he ultimately becomes somewhat obsessed with the idea. Determined to lose weight, Richard sets up a stationary bike in his basement. At first, he hangs a map of the United States on the wall, imagining himself traveling to a foreign destination with each mile. As time passes, though, the notion of the metabolic workmen enter his mind again, and he paints a bizarre landscape on the mural, depicting four tired workers clearing a fat-laden road. Richard's exercise soon produces results. He loses weight, and his cholesterol plummets. Sometimes later, he has a horrible nightmare about one of the workmen committing suicide. He is even driven to put the imagery of his dream to paper, but that's not enough to give him peace. These events cause the mural Richard has painted to transform, warping into a more nightmarish appearance with every, exist after every passing day. Despite these warning signs, though, Richard cannot stop exercising. He enters a trance when he rides, and he seems to enter the mysterious landscape as he does. Desperate with fear, Richard even goes so far as to try taking the machine apart, but he silently finds himself riding on the bike one last time. Suddenly, he's run off the road by a pickup truck and finds himself face-to-face -face with the three remaining workmen on the crew. They pass from the alternate reality of the road to Richard's world, where they deftly disassemble the stationary bike, then return to speak to him. They angrily accuse him of ruining their lives. Without a stream of fatty foods, they have stopped receiving income for their work. The workmen list their expensive expenses and explains that their loss of income drove their fellow member to suicide. Richard realizes that the men are conglomerations of people he has met before in his life and tries to tell them that they are nothing but figments of fantasy. But they are not phased, one iota. Still unnerved by the strange experience, Richard agrees to relax his diet. On impulse, he makes one request. He wants the cap that the workmen wear, blood red with the word lipid written on it. Before departing, the workmen admonish him to take care of himself, but not too much. As he steps back into reality, he begins to wonder when he will convince himself that the strange experience was all a dream. The story jumps forward a few weeks later. Richard has forgotten much of the experience, but it's affected him. For instance, he still mostly eats healthy foods, but allows himself a few indulgences, like apple pie a la mode, and obviously no longer rides the bike. When his mail comes one afternoon, he sees a package, which contains a baseball cap just like the one worn by the workers. He smiles as he dons the cap and prepares to go to work painting. My review. Guys, I love when King gets weird, and this is definitely one of those times. And like King's best, the fantastical elements of the story are prompted by something relatable and commonplace. A St. Bernard, a person coughing, a missing item around the house, a flock of sparrows outside your window, an inability to sleep, a truck speeding down the road too fast, a boy's first car, the new shop opening down the street, an eclipse a cell phone, mist rolling off a lake, a raft in the middle of a lake, and here, a stationary bike. We've all seen them, we've all used one, and leave it to King while using one to conjure up this banana story. And even though it's bonkers fun, it's also observing in all the best ways that King can find the truth in the situation. In this case, it's about exercising and the purpose of it. 
For anyone that's ever exercised, you'll know that without purpose, it's difficult to continue working out because working out for the sake of working out is pointless. He focuses on that here. Riding the bike became less boring immediately, but after two or three sessions, he realized that he still wasn't done because what was he doing was still only exercise. He needed to put in the red sky for one thing, but that was easy, nothing but slop work. He wanted to add more detail to both shoulders of the road up front and some litter as well, but those things were also easy and fun. The real problem had nothing to do with the picture at all, with either picture. The problem was that he had no goal, that he always bugged himself about exercise that existed for nothing more than its own sake. That kind of workout might tone you up and improve your health, but it was essentially meaningless while it was going on, existential even. That kind of workout was only about the next thing. For instance, some pretty lady from some magazine's art department coming up to you at a party and asking you if you'd lost weight. That wasn't even close to real motivation. He wasn't vain enough or horny enough for such possibilities to keep him going over the long haul. He'd eventually get bored and lapse into his old Krispy Kreme ways. No, he had to decide where the road was and where it was going. Then he could pretend to ride, pretend to ride there. This doesn't conclude with the vengeance or horror or even body horrors you might think it would. Instead, it ends on the musings of existentialism and the importance of moderation. By the end, he isn't shaken to his core or threatened into stopping, but instead, he realizes that he just needs to take it down a notch. And I love that. Stephen Kingisms. The painting. We have seen magical paintings before in Rose Matter, The Road Virus Heads North, The Dark Tower, Duma Key. In fact, of all the stories that feature supernatural paintings, this hues closest to Duma Key, which sees its main character as a conduit for inspiration much in the way that our main character here will lose himself in the art of painting. Chronologically, Duma Key and Just After Sunset both came out in 2008 with Stationary Bike having been first published in 2003. Second Stephen Kingism, The Traveler Losing Himself in a Trip. This actually makes for a nice companion piece to Mrs. Todd's shortcut. If you think about it. Number three, we have The Dream. King loves his dream sequences. And four, Addiction. Um, he's addicted to the stationary bike. It's not alcohol or drugs the way that King has written about before, but no, this guy is addicted. Easter eggs. There's a little joke in this story. One of the metabolic work crewmen's name is Whelan. The character in the story is brought um, through reality from a painting. The joke, of course, is that the artist of the gunslinger in the Dark Tower is Michael Whelan. And that's not just a throwaway reference. It's explicitly stated that this character is named after our Michael Whelan. So I thought that that was a really nice touch. Up next, we have The Things They Left Behind. Wikipedia. Almost a year after 9-11, strange things start to happen to narrator Scott Staley, who, at the time of the attacks, is employed at the Light and Bell Insurance on the 110th floor of the World Trade Center. Not only is Scott unable to get rid of his survivor's guilt, on 9-11, he followed an inner, voice, an inner voice that told him to take the day off to enjoy the sun. But things belonging to his late colleagues start to appear in his apartment. A pair of sunglasses, a baseball bat, a farting cushion. Scott can easily identify them all. After convincing himself that they're not illusion and that others can see them, he tries throwing them away, yet they reappear after his return home. He confides in Paula, a neighbor who offers to stow away one of the things. It triggers the most horrible nightmare of Paula's life, recreating in her mind the last minutes of its proprietor. Paula immediately returns the object, but makes Scott understand his mission. He must give the things to the victims' families, and upon seeing the joy on their faces, he feels his guilt slowly fade away. 
Um, so the review. Um, there's a couple things here. This is well done, um, and he captures the magnitude of 9/11 um, in very in a very poetic way. I mean, he bypasses the human involvement and creates a description that indicates the fundamental aspects of how the universe failed us on that day by describing it as the sky falling down. You know, I mean, this is about connecting with people. You think that he and Paul have made a connection, and he gives it a little twist, and it's not going to be as happy, but it's still about the people, referenced by the objects that have been left behind. Um, And really, it comes down to that story that we hear again and again and again of survivor's guilt and having that, that warning of not getting on a plane or not getting on a train or not going to work on a particular day. And we see that here. And it's done well. We have Stephen Kingisms. Um, first, it's objects appearing in a story marked by a major historical event. It's very specific, but it's not the first time we've seen this. In the novella, Why We're in Vietnam, from the collection Hearts in Atlantis, one of the characters, a Vietnam vet, believes that random objects begin falling from the sky. Similarly, in a post-9-11 world, here, our main character has to deal with random objects linked to September 11th. Um, and the date, 9-11 itself, this is a Stephen Kingism. We've seen this before within the works of Stephen King. Dr. Sleep and the Dark Tower come to mind. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Write in if, I'm, if I am wrong. Maybe I jumped it. I'm not sure. But um, I could have sworn that uh, this has been optioned for a series. I'm not sure, but it sounds right. Hey, up next, we have Graduation Afternoon. This is a short story by Stephen King, originally published in March of 2007, issue of Postscripts and collected in King's 28 collection of Just After Sunset. The story tells of a young woman enjoying her wealthy boyfriend's high school graduation party at his suburban Connecticut home when she witnesses the destruction of Manhattan by an atomic bomb. Review. The image of the mushroom cloud is nothing new, but King places us front row center, nevertheless, and makes it his own. Um, And it's really just about the dread of that happening. Um, it's a short story that just places us in it. Um, you know, and right now we are uh, living in a world where nuclear threat is more talked about than it has been um, since I was a kid in, like, elementary school. Um nuclear threat was not something that I, I I ever really recall hearing about or worrying about during the um, when uh, Clinton was president when Bush was president when Obama was president I, I just I don't really recall uh, nuclear conversations the way that we're having nuclear conversations now um and then uh, Stephen Kingism here is uh, youth juxtaposed against the backdrop of the end of the world, which uh, recalls Night Shift. Up next, we have New York Times at special bargain rates. From Wikipedia, a widow answers a phone call from her husband who died two days earlier in an airplane crash. He is presumably in the afterlife. The husband predicts two tragedies, which later come true, and helps his wife avoid death herself. This is a bittersweet little story that flies by on the strength of its conversation. 
King has already done this a bit more suspensefully with sorry right number, but he's not attempting to mimic the mystery of the call from the dead. He stand, instead, he uses it as a springboard, springboard to craft an effective little what-if story. What if you could talk to a loved one, if only for a few short minutes? It's all that this story is. It's no more, no less. So Stephen Kingisms. Phone call from a dead husband, which I just said, sorry right number. Number two, characters playing hearts. Jimmy is playing hearts in the afterlife, of course, Hearts most famously was seen in Hearts in Atlantis. Plane Crash, we have seen that from the feeling, you can only say what it is in French, um, the things that they left behind. Uh, the dead aware of death while in purgatory, um, we saw this earlier in Willa. Then we have Mute, Monette, a middle-aged traveling book salesman, his first name is never given, goes to confession. When the priest asks him what sin he has committed, Monette admits that while he believes he has sinned in some way, he is not entirely sure what he is guilty of. He then explains the events of the preceding days. While on the road, Monette picked up a hitchhiker carrying a sign proclaiming him to be deaf and mute. Once in the car, the hitchhiker seemingly falls asleep. Since Monette believes that the man cannot hear him, he decides to vent his problems to him. Sometime before the story, Monette discovered that his wife had been carrying on an affair for two years with a teacher in the school district she worked for. Despite their ages, he was 60, she was 54. Their activities included binge drinking, fetishism, and compulsive gambling. She was employed by the district in an administrative role and had access to large amounts of money, which she soon started to embezzle from her employer in order to buy various erotic underwear and sex toys. As her debt grew, she and her lover hoped to pay the money back by winning the lottery, only to embezzle more than $100,000 without earning any to replace it. She revealed all this to Monette, and to his disbelief tried to blame him for it, claiming his lack of interest drove her to it. Continuing to speak to the apparently sleeping hitchhiker, Monette expressed his anger at her irresponsibility and ill concern as to how the debt would ultimately affect their college student daughter, who is unaware of her mother's sordid antics. Stopping at a rest stop, Monette went to the bathroom. When he returned, the hitchhiker was gone, having taken nothing of value save for Monette's medallion of St. Christopher's. Monette thought nothing of this until two days later when the police called him to inform him that his wife and her lover had been beaten to death in a motel room. The priest, horrified and intrigued by the story, asks about the aftermath. Monette relates how he believed the hitchhiker was in fact not deaf and heard the whole story. Monette had mentioned the name of the motel that his wife and her lover were living at, which would have made finding them a simple matter. He also really, he presumed... He also presumably determined Monette's address by looking at the registration in the car, since Monette later found his medallion lying on his desk with a note, presumably from the hitchhiker, thanking him for the ride. Monette truthfully denies having intentionally set the hitchhiker up to kill his wife, but admits he is relieved about her death. He has an alibi, and his wife's life insurance will be sufficient to repay the money she embezzled. The priest admonishes Monette for his relief and tells him to do ten Our Fathers and Hail Marys. Before leaving, Monette asks about the possibility of God putting the hitchhiker in the car. The priest's first impulse is to say yes, but he outwardly admonishes Monette for blasphemy and adds ten Our Fathers to his atonement. He then asks Monette if he genuinely wants the killer to be caught. Monette insists that he does, but is perhaps not entirely sure. On his way home, he adds a few extra Our Fathers and Hail Marys. My review. This beginning is a wonderful hook. We've all seen that scene before of the man in the confessional booth with the famous words, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. The twist here, which propels the plot and the reader's interest, is the clever exchange between Monette and the priest. 
Father, I may have committed a terrible sin. Now the police, now the priest went silent for a while. Mute, Monette thought. There was a white word if there ever was one. Type it on a file card and it ought to disappear. When the priest on the other side of the screen spoke again, his voice was still, but more grave. Still friendly, but more grave. What's your sin, my son? And Monette said, I don't know. You'll have to tell me. <laughs> now that's how you start a story. The story itself is a well-told, weird little romp driven by the main character's telling of it. And, um, you know, like, it's this is one of those things where the specificity just really adds to it. I mean... The, the administrative embezzlement of this woman and her affair and the gambling with a hitchhiker involved, all of it wrapped up in a tone of slight humor with true, like, tragedy is just a, a showing a master at work. And then we have Stephen Kingisms, hitchhikers. Um, just the fact that a hitchhiker factors into the story at all conjures the story of the hitchhiker from Creepshow 2, but we've seen them in other stories before, Chattery Teeth, The Talisman, and others. But specifically, we have a sub-Stephen Kingism, which is deaf hitchhikers. Um, Nick Andros um, was a deaf traveler in The Stand. Um, marriage and murderer for Stephen King sometimes goes hand-in-hand, hand, as we've seen with a good marriage and LT's theory of pets. In terms of Easter eggs, uh, dairy is mentioned. Then we have Ayana um, from Wikipedia. A man recounts his father's battle with pancreatic cancer in 1982, culminating in the intervention of a blind seven-year-old girl named Ayana. After being kissed by the mysterious child, similar to John Coffey in The Green Mile, Doc Gentry makes a, a miraculous recovery from the edge of death, and the narrator discovers that his own part in the working of miracles is only the beginning. Over the following decades, he describes visits from a man who delivers him to others in needs of their own miracles. My review. The Wikipedia entry references the Green Mile, and its truth to the story invokes the thrust of that novel and opens up the character of John Coffey in strange and unexpected ways. Now, there's two ways of looking at this. One from the literal connected dots kind of way. That is, if you take everything that King has written to fit the pre-existing continuity, that means that you have to easily assume that because John Coffey was a healer of men and women, then these healers are the same. And because Coffey's time took place in the early 1900s, then you could argue that he wasn't a part of this group because the group and the purpose of this group came later. That these healers found each other and did what they could to provide a little bit of healing in a damaged world of sick people. The other way of looking at it is that King likes playing with similar ideas over and over again, and I think that that's what we're seeing here. And you can tell when King wants to connect those dots, he does it for us and makes fun Easter eggs. He would have referenced John Coffey or the Green Mile itself. We don't get any of that, so I think that he's just riffing on a pre-existing concept. And guys, with that, I have concluded my thoughts on Just After Sunset. If you want to hear my thoughts on the stories that I didn't review here, all you have to do is just go back to my first review of Just After Sunset. But it was good to, to, to review these ones because I, I really enjoyed um, you know, heading back into this particular collection. I loved reading Willa, for instance. That one really, really spoke with me more than it did the first time around. Okay, guys. Um, so now that I have concluded my review of the, the short stories that I didn't get to my first time around, I'm kind of not sure what next week's episode is going to look like, but make sure that you do stick around for next week's episode because there will be something. In the meantime, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast.